I want to send out, I did this first service too, I want to send out a congratulations. Did, did Nate step out? Nate is uh, a teacher at Willamette High School, and you can tell that he's a great communicator. He got recognized as being an outstanding teacher in their, in their district, so I just want to give a big congratulations to, to Nate. He got a big recognition, so congratulations, Nate. <laughs> Sending that out to him. It was also great to have this morning uh, Joelle helping lead in worship on the keys. Thank you, Joelle. Um, wonderful job on the keys. Um, Joelle humbled me this morning. She wasted no time. She, uh, she came in and goes, I kind of know you. And I was like, really? And she said, yeah, my mom helped you when you did your financial aid to go to college. And I was like, no kidding. I said, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. She said, oh, that's probably fine. She said, oh, I was only four months old when that happened. I was like, wow. So thank you. Yes, some, sometimes God humbles you. So um, if you could bring me down my mic just a smidge touch, Richard. I saw you getting comfortable. Sorry, it's just got a little bit of hum there. Um, so um, we, are, we are in our series, Rhythms, and it's such an important series as we go through talking about rhythms of life, there are long rhythms of life. There are rhythms like we talk about um, birth and, and adolescence or childhood and adolescence and adulthood and eventual death. That's a, you know the long rhythms of life. There are shorter rhythms of life. There are, there are um, day-to-day rhythms. Um, and uh, as Christians, it's, it's important we understand the rhythms and set up priorities in our rhythms. That was why the first message in our series was on priorities, setting up priorities, because before you know it, if you look back, you might realize, where did time go? How have I spent my life? Where did it all go? So I'm going to give kids the chance to go up to Kids Church if they want. We'll get everybody settled here before we move forward. Uh, I don't want anybody to be distracted, so we'll, we'll all get settled in here. All right. All right. All right. So so it's important that we have these priorities set up. And, and so last week, so first week we talked about setting up priorities. Then last week we talked about rest and how important it is that we take rest, that we stop and we pause and we rest. And this week we're going to go the opposite side of that and we're going to talk about work. And so as we talk about work, I was thinking about how do I, how do I title this message? How do I title this series? And uh, I, I landed... I, I'm not very good at titling messages, to be honest with you. Normally I go with a message, I go uh, ser- uh, message one, message two, message three, message four of a series, or something like that. Or, 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 um, but uh, I've been trying to be really intentional about naming my messages. So for this one on work, I was really struggling with the name, so I came up with Working Title. I think it, it kind of works. It's a double entendre. It's a little bit meta, but that was what I came up with. Uh, but work is interesting. It's important because from the age of 18, sometimes for some of us an even younger age, we start working, we get a job, and then for the next 50 years, of more or li- uh, 50 years or more of life, it really consumes most of our life. Most of our time is going to be spent working. Um, some of us work in secular jobs at a desk or maybe behind a steering wheel or at a piece of machinery, or wearing a tool belt, or at a computer, or wearing an apron. Some uh, work domestically, um, in the home, raising a family, doing a little bit of all those things, really. You think about all those things I just listed behind a steering wheel. You're driving family around, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're um, at cooking, you're, you're, you're uh, at a desk, you're sending emails, you're doing all those different things. Um, but uh, one of the questions that's often offered and answered at an introduction, right when you meet someone, is what do you do? That's like one of the first questions I ask when I meet someone. So what do you do? 
And it's, it's kind of just that immediate first thing we ask someone. And, uh, and it's kind of the first thing that follows our name. If you're watching like a game show and they're like, you know, you watch Jeopardy and right after the first round, not that I wouldn't, this shows I watch Jeopardy now. Um, right after the first round, they go up and they talk to the people and they're like, you know, hi, this is Oliver. He is a professional tambourinist from, you know, Poughkeepsie, New York. And, uh, and, uh, you know, this is Sue. She's a soup chef from Des Moines. And, and, you know, we go down the line. And uh, introduce everybody. It's like part of who we are. Work really defines us. If you say what you are, you say, I am a nurse, or I am a mechanic, or I am an electrician. And uh, it's interesting because we tie our literal identity right in with our employment, with, right in with what we do. And uh, for many people, I've seen after retirement, there's kind of a, an, a crisis, an identity crisis that happens because all that you've tied into who you are has been with your job and then suddenly that job is gone and you're like, who am I? What am I doing with myself? And, and there's, there's this source of identity that's been taken away. And so with work encompassing so much uh, of a massive segment of our human experience, how should that inform the framework of our Christian walk? How should that inform uh, our perspective as believers? And, and is there really such a thing as like a framework we should have for work or a, a, an outlook we should have? Well, I think so. And, and, and so we'll look at this together. We're going to start in the book of Genesis. Last week we started in Genesis chapter 2. This week we're starting in Genesis chapter 2. So get out your Bibles with me. We're going to go back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 2. So last week we read about God creating the heavens and the earth and then... On the seventh day, he rests and sets a model for rest for us. We're going to move just two verses down to verse 4. So starting in verse 4, read this with me. It says this, When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth. And there were no, no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. God had in-ground sprinkling back then. That's pretty cool. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had made. We're going to jump ahead a little bit. It goes on to talk about some of the features of the garden, the trees that were there, including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the rivers that flowed. But moving down to verse 15, if you'll follow with me there, it says in verse 15, The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden, to tend and watch over it. To tend and watch over it. This is interesting. This is interesting. The first thing we can draw from this is that work is a blessing, not a curse. Work is a blessing, not a curse. God placed Adam in the garden and he gave him a mission. He gave him a job. He assigned him some work to do. And it's interesting because this is pre-sin. This is before sin entered the world. This is before the curse. God still gave them work to do. I think often we think, oh, well, sin entered the world and that's why I have to go to work. Sin happened and now we all have to toil. Now we all have to work. But the truth is, Scripture indicates that God gave Adam a job and work to do before sin even happened. So work itself is actually a blessing, not a curse. Um, God didn't create Adam and be like, now just go hang out. Just kind of go chill and kind of fill the space a little bit. But rather, he gave him a purpose. You see, work gives us creative outlet. It makes us productive. It gives us usefulness. It, it actually engages our creativity. The problem is when we aren't productive, it creates space for the opposite, doesn't it? 
When we aren't being productive, when we aren't working, it actually give, gives space for the opposite. Because as a matter of fact, when you, when you, when you read um, from what happened with Eve, it was when she wasn't being productive, when she wasn't working, that the snake, that the serpent was able to actually deceive her and sin into the world. When we aren't productive, it creates this space for, for, for everything that shouldn't be there. As a matter of fact, Paul gives a stern warning about this to the believers that were in Thessalonica. The church in Thessalonica got going, and Paul told them, listen, Jesus is coming soon. Be ready. Any day, Jesus is coming. And I'm sure they were reading, um, you know, as the, as the Gospels were being written, and they were reading the accounts of Jesus, and he was talking about, you know, having, having your, your lamps trimmed and ready to go, that any day the bridegroom will return. And so the church in Thessalonica thought, if the end of the world is coming and Jesus will be here any day, why work? Let's just hang out until Jesus gets here. We're good to go. How many of you knew, if you knew, like, the end of the world was tomorrow, like, the, there's some sort of mega volcano and we're all going to, gonna die, how many would be like, I really gotta get to work today? I really gotta, I, I wanna clock in. They thought the end of the world was coming. Why work? And so, Paul writes them a letter, and, and this portion of the letter, he's not very gentle. He's actually a little bit aggressive. So if you have your Bibles or, or you're on the app, jump with me to the book of Second uh, Thessalonians in this letter he writes to them because uh, he really straightens them out on this. In Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 3 in verse 6, it says this. And now, Paul's writing this. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters. That was the nice part. He said, Now, dear brothers and sisters. We give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they receive from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Listen to this. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, uh, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they will be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or sister. Who? <laughs> Paul just dropped on the church like, he says, you better be working. And if you're not working, you shouldn't be even able to eat. We're not talking about the luxuries he's saying you shouldn't have. He said food. Like, you need to be working. You see, the truth is, work is an expectation set by Scripture, not an option. So work is a blessing, yes, but it's also an expectation, not an option. Paul isn't saying that at times it isn't appropriate to receive assistance. There are times in life that we go through a difficult moment where we need help, and there are those safety nets, there are reasons that we have these things to help us out. And as a matter of fact, Paul regularly asks for support in his ministry. He says, support me in this. But he was working, he was saying, support sending me. But here Paul is speaking against this something for nothing mentality. This, I should get something for nothing. The idea that by the mere merit of my existence, my entitlement as a human being, something is owed to me because of it. Because I am, I am, I am a, 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 who I am, something is owed to me. This expecting a bare minimum without myself being productive. 
He's talking about food there. That's pretty basic. You see, and I, I, I make a real effort to not get political here, but it's important we understand. I think this is an important thing we understand. This last several months have been really interesting. We've had a window to see into uh, a real picture of, of the human psyche. Um, we've, we had this pandemic, and during the pandemic... Um, there were social nets that were deployed for people's welfare due to layoffs, due to businesses being shuttered. It was a terrible time and we wanted people to not be homeless to make sure that they could pay their rent. And we, we sent out all these social nets to help catch people. But as the economy has recovered, businesses have been starting back up and you start to look at businesses and they're begging for employees to come back. We will please come back. We'll give you bonuses. We, but no one is going back to work in many cases. And it's a really interesting thing, interesting thing to see because a large portion of people, we realize, if they're given the opportunity to work, will not work if someone else or another entity is willing to take care of their needs. If I'm able to have my needs met and not work, I'll take that option. It's an interesting view here. And so Paul is warning these people against idleness because as we saw in the book of Acts, there were social programs within the church. They were supporting widows and and orphans and they were helping people. There was a bread program. They were making sure people ate. But people were taking advantage of that and living idle lives saying, well, Jesus is going to come soon. Let's kick back, relax, just to have a cerveza and and wait for the Lord's return. And uh, you guys can keep the bread coming. And Paul's like, you guys are getting it all wrong. You guys are, you guys are missing this. What, what, look, he said, look what happens when we're idle. I like what he says in the NIV version, how it translates it. It says, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive, and they are not busy, they are busy bodies. Going from being busy to being busy bodies. Being unproductive doesn't just mean that you're a neutral force. Not working and not being productive doesn't mean you're just being neutral. It actually, you, you, you become a destructive force, he says. You start to get into other people's business. We start to criticize. We start to grumble. We start to complain. We start to control. We start to gossip. We start to get busy in the wrong way. And so, and so you may say, Pastor Brent, that's, that's an interesting story, but if you knew my job situation, you wouldn't want to work either if you were given the choice. If you knew the people I work with, my boss is demanding. The people I work with are nasty. I don't want to hear that from my, my administrative assistant just yepping and amening over there. She's like, preach, testify. <laughs> the pay is too small. <laughs> the commute is tiring. Nobody appreciates me. And that's just on Mondays. You don't understand the situation. Let me tell you. As Christians, we are called to respect our employers. That doesn't mean our employers are always respectable. Sometimes they're downright unethical. There's corruptness that can happen. There's immoral and foul things that can happen in the workplace and by our employers. But how do we navigate this? What do we do in those situations then? What's that look like for us? See, there's an interesting section of Scripture in, in the letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, as a matter of fact. So right now we're in Thessalonians. If you turn probably about 10 pages or less the other direction in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this book, this letter, to another church that's in Ephesus, and he's writing to slaves. And here's what he says in, in did I say chapter 4? I mean chapter 6, I'm sorry. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5. He says this, he says, Slaves... 
Obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all of your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. This, this isn't an often preached section of scripture, not often talked about because it's uncomfortable. It talks about slavery. It's dealing with slavery. And when, when interpreted through certain lenses, it can be seen and used as justification for slavery. Um, I mean, this is, this is a verse that was actually avowed by many slaveholding states in the South that said good Christian people could hold other humans that were created in the image of God as property. But this is not... What's going on here? First of all, we need to understand that Paul is addressing a situation with slavery that was a societal norm, and and I'm not giving credence or acceptance to this, but the concept of a slave-free culture was non-existent at that time. It wasn't. It, they didn't know what a slave-free culture was. It it just literally didn't make sense. It would like it would be like me trying to explain to you we we live in a place where we don't actually have grocery stores and restaurants or something. You're like, well, how could you do that? I don't understand. They it wouldn't connect with them. So they, he was addressing a society where this was a societal a societal norm, and this was 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 something that was um, the concept was non-existent to not have that. Now, did it make it acceptable? Absolutely not. It didn't make slavery acceptable at all. But Paul isn't addressing in this section of Scripture the morality of slavery. He's not tackling that topic. As a matter of fact, throughout Scripture, we see more talking about the slaves being set free. We see freedom for the captives. We see that over and over. And as we see Christianity stretch across the world, there's an increasing uh, uh, growth of social justice and freedom. But, uh, but, but what Paul is addressing here is he's writing this letter and he's writing it to both masters and slaves, slaves who were people that were in the worst possible situation you could imagine for a job. They were indentured servants. That means they were in forced labor. It wasn't like, would you rather or not? Maybe you could just turn in, you know, your two-week notice. It, there was no option. They were in the worst possible situation, and yet, even in the midst of the most vile circumstance, he says, I call you to serve and to work as if you were serving and working for Christ himself. To work with integrity, whether you're being seen or unseen. To work with enthusiasm, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. In this story, what Paul writes reminds me of a story that happens in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 39 to a guy named Joseph. Joseph is an interesting story. Joseph was the teacher's pet, right? He was dad's favorite. Dad went out and bought him a Gucci jacket. And everybody else in the family, it was a big family, so he got everyone else their, their clothes with Kohl's cash. And everyone was really bitter against him, right? They all, they all, they all, his brothers hated him. They're like, we're all, we're all dressed like this and you're, you're flashing all that cool stuff you've got from dad and on top of it you come around and tell us, hey, funny story, I had this dream and I think it's going to come true. You guys are all going to bow down to me. You're going to like worship me. And they didn't appreciate that either and so they finally come up with a plan, we'll just kill him. 
Here he comes, that dreamer. And so he's coming along and they're about to kill him. And then someone's like, wait, wait, we could at least make some money off this. Let's sell him as a slave. And so along come these slave traders and they sell him into slavery, their own, their own brother. And uh, that's where the story picks up in Genesis 39, if you have your Bibles. Genesis 39 says, When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. And this pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. It's an interesting story. Because Joseph was under no obligation to be successful. I would have been incredulous if I was in Joseph's position. I was born a free man. Like, not only born a free person, but, but I was like favored above everyone else. I was the favorite. I could have anything I want. And so on top of it all, even my free agency was taken away. I was put in chains and taken away and forced to work for someone else. I have no choice about it. I have no decision-making options about it. I have to be this man's slave. And so what would be his motivation in this? What, what would be his motivation to actually work hard and be successful working for Potiphar? What, what, what would it, for me, my decision would probably be, I will work just hard enough and look just busy enough to not get beaten. Or not be executed, definitely. Those would be my, like, two priorities. But Joseph went above and beyond. Joseph worked, worked to actually the success of his master. And why would you do that? Why would putting money in Potiphar's pockets be any benefit to Joseph? Why would Potiphar not have to worry about anything he does in his life other than what he's going to eat be beneficial to Joseph? It's not going to change his status. He's still a slave. Why would it all matter? Because Joseph knew that he was working for something more than for Potiphar. He was working for the king. He was working for the king. He was working for the glory of the king. And we are called to work for the glory of our king. It's not about the person we work for. When we work for the glory of God, it's not about the name of the person who signs our our check. When we work for the glory of God, it's not about the title on the sign that sits on our desk, but rather it's for something more. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Joseph was working for something more. He wasn't guaranteed any kind of benefit or change or being released from slavery. He was working for something more greater. And so you may have heard the saying, when you love what you do, you won't work a single day in your life. Have you heard that saying before? I have a hard time with that one. You look at the jobs that are out there. Statistically speaking, I'm going to say this. Statistically speaking, many, if not most of the people in this room or watching online would probably say that they're not working in their dream scenario. A lot of people would say, uh, you have a job and it puts bread on the table. It's a job that, that, that makes ends meet or, or, or it helps work towards making ends meet. And there's a dignity to that work. But, but what I feel is destructive about this notion that when you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life is it puts a false narrative that unless you're passionate about what your particular occupation is, you, can, you can't live fulfilled. 
Unless you're actually like, this is my passion and I'm just, every day is just like joy and, and skipping and, and, and clapping my hands and woohoo, that you're somehow unfulfilled. This is, this is a, this is, this is a dangerous thing that we, we, we look at, um, that we need to have our actual jobs be the fulfillment. That that's what gives us the fulfillment. When I was, uh, my freshman year of college, I came home for the summer, and uh, at that time, the job market was not what it is now, where they're paying you to get a job. It was really competitive, and I was fortunate enough to get a job as a temp at a sawmill. And um, as a temp in a sawmill, they don't trust you with much there. It's not like they're like, you know, hey, run all the big machinery, push the buttons, we trust you, you know, 18-year-old kid. It was not like that at all. They, uh, the, the foreman took me and was like, okay, we're going to give you a very special job. And he took me to this place that was kind of underneath all the machinery and everything. And uh, there was a massive pile of sticks of various sizes. They're called stickers in, in, in the mill industry. And they're used to separate uh, a lumber when it's coming off the, off the chain. And so it's, it kind of separates it to different levels. And so he brought me before this pile of thousands of these stickers. And he said, your job is going to be to take these stickers and take the little ones and put them in this pile and take the big ones and put them in this pile. Have a good day. <laughs> and so there's this conveyor belt where it's a constant flow of these stickers coming down. So he's like, this is just going to keep going and you know, we'll keep this guy out of our hair. He won't break anything. He'll separate the little sticks. And so I stood there and sure enough, down the line, keep coming these stickers and I'd pick one up and put one in this pile and put one in this pile and separate the sticks. But I realized as I started going, I think I'm moving a little bit faster than the conveyor belt. And so I, I, I kind of saw if I could start beating it. And sure enough, little by little, that pile started getting shorter and shorter. And by the end of the day, I had that pile down to nothing. I had actually cleared out the whole area, had organized the sticks, found a broom, swept up the area, and now it was spick and span. And I was making a game out of waiting for the stickers to come down the conveyor belt to see if I could catch them before they hit the ground. And uh, it was like a game I was playing to kind of keep myself from going crazy too. And uh, and and the and the foreman was walking by, and he he looks and, and kind of stops and looks, and I had that area spick and span. And he he's like, "You are an excellent stick sorter. Wow." <laughs> Top-notch stick sorter. And, and, uh, and he, he kind of was like, I, I don't want to pay this guy to just sit here playing with sticks coming off the conveyor belt, you know. And so, so he, he said, come with me. And he, he brought me through the mill, and he brought me to an area that was called the Tally Bay. And there were guys there that were literal, this was like th- their job. They were journeymen. They had done this for years. And I got to work alongside these guys. I got to start using cool tools like chainsaws and drive forklifts, which was super cool, the best part of the job. And, uh, and as I did that, I, 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 I got entrusted with more. Now, when I was working, separating the little sticks down there, can I tell you, I didn't think they're really going to give me a promotion here. <laughs> they're going to move me up to senior stick sorter someday. <laughs> but I was faithful with those little sticks. I was faithful with what I had been given. And I was elevated then after that. You see, glamour doesn't define that the glory God receives. The glamour of the job isn't what it's about, but it's, it's the glory that God receives but through the work that we do. There is no such thing as work that is menial before God. God cares more about how we work than about what we work. You might have a job you feel like, this is so small, it makes me feel so small. I feel, I feel just like it's, it's not going anywhere. Can I tell you, God sees you. God sees you. And our job is to be faithful and to leave it to God to handle the reward. 
It says, again in Ephesians, God will reward each of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. No matter where you are, no matter if you feel like you're being abused in your job or you're being elevated in your job, God sees where you are. And God will dispense the reward. So as Joseph worked in Potiphar's house, there was no promise of promotion. Joseph was working faithfully in Potiphar's house and he wasn't thinking, if I keep this up, do you know what I bet's going to happen? I'll probably get a big promotion. His wife's going to hit on me. I'll be like, no, thank you. They'll throw me in prison. Then though, I'll get out of prison on a, on a crazy dream story and uh, I, I'll probably get a job for working for Pharaoh himself, second in command of the whole nation and save the world for like seven years of famine. That's going to probably be my story. Joseph had no idea what was coming up. He knew where he was at, and he was faithful with where he was at. God used him because he was faithful with where he was placed in the moment, and he rewarded him for it. You see, God can take a situation that that seems unredeemable, and God God sees your faithfulness. It's interesting, because during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the Protestants separated from the Catholic Church, and, and uh, there was this, this movement, this awakening that was going on. But what we don't often realize is within that Protestant uh, uh, group, there were actual other groups that were kind of having discussion and debate, and there were two extreme sides of it. There was one side that said, the church needs to separate from everything that's going on in society. We need to, we should have nothing to do with the world at all. We shouldn't vote. We shouldn't have people in the military. We shouldn't have any people involved with anything secular. We need to separate. And only things that happen within the Christian community can be considered God's work. And then on the other side of the debate were people that, can, that called themselves the triumphal approach. And they said, no, 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 no. Here's what Christians should do. Christians should be hyper-involved with culture. We should go in and dominate every aspect of society and make that the church. Make that everything that should be going on. And so these both are going on, These both these extreme thoughts. But what's funny is they both had the same basis. They both had the tendency to say that work out in the world isn't really God's work. Only work that happens within the church is God's work. And then Martin Luther came along. Not Martin Luther King Jr. This is the first Martin Luther. And he said, we can't say that only people working inside the church are doing God's work. He said, we are all about the Father's business. No matter what our vocation is, we are about the Father's business. No matter what profession you have, each person will possess a unique challenge on how God can be glorified in your field. Tim Keller says this. I love this quote. He said, work matters to God, and God matters to work. You see, it's so important that we be careful not to divorce our faith from our work. We can't separate what we confess on Sunday from how we live the other six days of our lives. Six days of our week. I shouldn't say lives. That's a very short life. The other six days of our week. We can't, we can't separate how we, how we live Sundays and the other six days of our week. We can't divorce those two. It's so important that we understand that these are integral together. All work matters to God. God works through our work. From the mop that you push to the wrench that you turn to the stethoscope that you use, we are all under a charge. We work for the glory of God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, listen to this, this is important. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. God's very own possession. 
And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, here's the deal. Peter's writing this. Did you know he wasn't writing it to the other apostles? He wasn't writing it to the missionaries that were there or the, 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 the people that were the pastors of the churches or the leaders of the church. He was writing it to everyone in the church and he says, you are all royal priests. And sometimes I skip over that first word, royal, kingly, kingly priests. We serve God. We are all royal and we are priests. We serve God with everything we do. We are royal priests. I work in a church. I am a pastor. I am a priest before God, a royal priest before God. But can I tell you, if you're a plumber in here, you are a royal priest serving before God. If you're a cook, you are a royal priest serving before God. If you're a teacher, you're a royal priest serving before God. If you're an accountant, you're a royal priest serving before God. If you're an engineer, you are a royal priest who serves before God. We all serve before God. That's the dignity and beauty of what our work is. No matter what your job, there is no menial work when we serve for the king. So let's serve him with all we have for his glory and leave it to him to lift us up. Amen. Father, Lord, I pray for this church as we are all represent a massive representation of different employment, jobs, careers, such a variety and space of work that we do but Lord I pray that we would all recognize that we work for the same boss we work for the king and for his glory and in everything we do in that unique situation wherever that niche may be for our job that we would do it for your glory and we would serve you and our utmost for your highest and that you would be glorified ultimately through it all We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So one last thing I want to mention before we close today. Um, We were talking about Ephesians. And in Ephesians 6, it talks about the slaves in that difficult section of Scripture. About the slaves and and, and serving their masters. And, And this is an interesting section of Scripture because... The way slavery worked, it wasn't, like I said, just based on on your ethnicity or whatever it might be. It was actually actually set up as collateral. People were collateral that could be put up for a debt. What I mean by that is if you owed money, say you wanted to buy a car, you could put up a person as collateral. Say, if I don't make this payment, you can come grab my son or daughter and you can take them as a slave until I get it paid off. And so the way that they used people as collateral, people could go into slavery. You could even use yourself as collateral. Say, if I don't pay back that debt, I will become your slave. Or they would set up agreements and say, tell you what, I owe you a big debt. I'll come work for you as a slave for six years to pay off that debt. You could use yourself as a slave. And so this is what makes the book of Romans chapter 6, or the book of Romans in chapter 6 so powerful because it talks about while we were slaves to sin. And here's what happens. We have a debt to sin that we can't pay. We are slaves to that sin. There's no amount of work we can do to earn it off. We are forever indebted to sin. We can't be good enough. We can't earn it. But sin has reign over us and the wages of that sin, what ultimately is going to come down to is our death. The wages of sin is death. 
But there's someone who came for us who paid the price that we couldn't pay for that slavery we have to sin. And his name is Jesus. He's the only one that could have paid the full price for that sin. And Jesus came and he took the death that was due us and he took it upon himself and he nailed it to the cross with our sin. And he took that sin to the cross and he paid for it so that we no longer have to be slaves to sin but we could be set free. And we have wholeness we have freedom in the name of Jesus. And that's why the book of Romans is so powerful, talking about that freedom we have from the slavery to sin. Jesus paid the debt of our slavery so that we could be set free. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to give you the opportunity. If you've never given your life to Jesus, or maybe you haven't been living for him and you need to set your life right before God, I want to give you that chance. No amount of being a good enough person can earn us being right with God. We like to think, well, I'm a pretty good person compared to this person or that person. But who sets the scale? Who says, this is the breaking point of good enough, bad enough? There is no amount of good we can be. One sin is enough to separate us from a perfect God. The only thing that can make us right with God is Jesus who lived a perfect life for us. He lived perfectly for us. He made no sin and yet took sin upon himself. But that's the thing. He didn't just die and stay dead. He rose again. We serve a living, risen Savior. And so right now, He wants to be the king of your heart and give you that freedom. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And right now, I want to give you that opportunity. If you have never given your heart to Jesus, or you need to recommit your life to Jesus, and say, this is a debt I can't pay. I've been working my best to pay it off, but I can't do it on my own. And you need him to step in right now. Raise your hand, and I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Raise it high. Yeah, yeah. Anyone else? Anyone else say, I need Jesus? Yeah, thank you. I see those hands. Anyone else? Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. In a minute, we're going to pray together. And I want to tell you something. This is a prayer of faith. It's a prayer that comes from your heart that says, I believe Jesus in you. The prayer of faith is what gives us salvation. But here's the deal. We are called then to walk humbly with our God and to become a follower of Jesus. So it's not just a momentary prayer, but now it's a decision to say for the rest of my life, Jesus, you're my Lord. I want you to be the king of my life. And I want to help you with those steps, those next steps of what it means to follow Jesus. So here's what I ask of you. Would you please follow in the service? Come talk to me. I want to help you get those materials and those next steps in your hands so you can follow Jesus successfully. The enemy, the devil wants nothing more than to see you uh, fall away, to see you get discouraged, to see you give up. But I want to give you the tools to take the next steps to get you plugged into community to follow Jesus. At very least, if you don't want to talk to me, will you mark your connection card when we're finished at the end of the service? Let me know on that connection card you've decided to follow Jesus and we'll be in touch. Just mark that box. That's all there is to it. But right now, I want us to pray together. Just repeat this prayer after me and mean it from the bottom of your heart. Church, let's pray this together. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming after me. While I was a slave to sin, you overcame it all. You died for me in my place so that I could have life. I believe that you rose again and that you are at the right hand of God. Be the king of my heart, Jesus. Be my Lord and Savior. I will follow you from this day forward for the rest of my life your name. Amen.
Amen. Amen. The Bible says that heaven rejoices with us. If we had these five people that said, I've decided to follow Jesus. He is my king. We celebrate with you. Praise God. Praise God that you have now entered into eternity. We celebrate that today together. Um, I, I do encourage you. I ask you, please let us know right now on our connection cards as we do these. Let us know that you've decided to follow Jesus. We want to get those materials in your hands. So right now, if everyone, if you get your cell phones out, as Nate walked us through how to use the QR code. We've got the QR code up there. Hopefully it's big enough that your phone can see it. We'll go to our connection cards. Go to nlcchurch.com slash connect or point your camera right there. It'll bring up the connection card. We really appreciate you letting us know this is your first time and if you've decided to follow Jesus, we'll be in touch with you. Also, let us know if you want to be baptized. We love having baptism services. They're my favorite. It's uh, one of the only baths I get through the through the month. So, no, I'm kidding. It's, it's just a wonderful time of celebration of saying, I've decided to follow Jesus and I want the world to know it. And so um, we, are, we, want to, we want to get you baptized. Let us know if you want to be baptized. Um, so... Let's do our connection cards together. Let us know what we can be praying with you about. Our elders pray about these lists every week. Um, Tony sends out the prayer list to our prayer team. We lift these things up. We don't just say it and make it lip service. We mean it. We say we, when we say we actually pray for what's on your heart. And we've seen miracles and answers to prayer. Let us know what God's been doing so we can celebrate with answered prayer too on those connection cards. Give us, give us testimonies. So let's fill that out. And right now, ushers, if you'll prepare yourselves, we're going to receive our morning tithes and offerings. Um, I want to just be, be forth, forthright with you, church. Uh, August was a challenging month for the church. I think that we had a lot of people away with sickness, uh, traveling, things like that. Um, we, we fell short of the goals that we had, that our elders and our leaders set up for our, our, what we needed for the church through giving in August. Um, I'm not asking you if you give faithfully. I'm not asking you to give more. What I'm asking is if you've been away or perhaps you haven't been faithful in that, to consider um, giving and to, to get back on track, get back with that rhythm. Uh, in life of giving. So thank you for your giving. Thank you for seeing, investing in what God is doing here in this work, but also in your obedience. So let's give with joyful hearts this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for giving us a call to work, purpose. That from the very beginning, you engaged us in being part of creation. That we are actually involved with what's going on with your creation. We aren't just passive, but you've invited us into the process. And Lord, I pray that we would work with all we have for your glory through this week. And right now as we give, God, I pray that you would take this, multiply it. Let us see your kingdom move forward in incredible ways. And we thank you for it, Jesus. And your precious, and your awesome, and your mighty name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give. Thank you.